Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Kamru's Aram. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is showing Focus, Kamru's Aram, an installation of Aram's recent sculpture, collage, and painting. The exhibition continues Aram's investigation into the complex relationship between non-Western art and Western modernism, particularly as those various artistic traditions push toward abstraction. Curated by Allison Hurst, the exhibition is on view in Fort Worth through June 17th. Aram has had solo exhibitions in Belgium, at LaxArt in Los Angeles, and at Mass MoCA. And he's been included in group shows such as MoMA PS1's Greater New York and at the Biennials in Busan and Prague. On the second segment, Matthew Angelo Harrison discusses his recent work. He's included in the New Museum Triennial Songs for Sabotage. But first, Kamru's Aram, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view at the Pulitzer through August 11th, Mona Hatoum, Terra Inferma, is the artist's first major solo exhibition in the United States in 20 years and comprises more than 30 sculptures and installations. Merging the languages of minimalism and surrealism filtered through a feminist lens, Hatoum subverts the familiar to offer nuanced perspectives on universal human questions. The exhibition has been organized by the Menil Collection Houston and is on view at the Pulitzer in St. Louis through August 11, 2018. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Step into the ancient world of Greece and Rome at the newly reimagined Getty Villa. Experience masterpieces never before on view, a major reinstallation of the collection's Greek, Roman, and Etruscan treasures, and new exhibitions, including Plato in L.A., Contemporary Artists' Visions, which features work by Jeff Koons, Whitney McVeigh, Raymond Pettibone, and many other celebrated artists. Learn more about the Getty Villa and Getty Center's lineup of events at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Kamru Zaram, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. For someone like me who writes history and who loves swimming in the art historical sea, your work is candy, kind of the product of a fellow traveler. And obviously what you do requires art historical knowledge of both Western and non-Western traditions and, and pretty thorough knowledge of that. So when and how did you first begin finding history and art history interesting? Does, does this go back before you were an art student? No, I, it was probably when I was an art student. And I think it's it's probably fair to say that my interest in history and art history is, is rather crackpot. Like, I'm not super well informed about art history. I know a lot of artists, you know, you read uh, artists' writings and they have an encyclopedic knowledge of art history. That's That's not me. So a traditional American art student education, I would think, values Western traditions and presents Western traditions as being more familiar and important than non-Western traditions. Was that, a, was that your experience? 
Absolutely. I think from the very beginning, you know, you're you're studying uh, as a painter, you're studying the Western history and methods of painting. And I came up as a figurative painter and eventually was taught abstraction by people who probably studied with abstract expressionists. The approach was really the sort of Hans Hoffmann school of painting. And so then when and how did you find um, non-Western traditions and non-Western work on your own or through a, a teacher or a professor? Um, yeah, I think probably a combination. Early on, uh, I was an art student. I was a BFA student in Baltimore in the 90s. And the experience that I had was that I started to kind of see the um, maybe the residual effects of 90s identity politics among the students. And, and and the work that was being made to me seemed a little bit exoticist in some cases and, and maybe like self-orientalizing. And it, it was something that I felt like I wanted to negotiate, something that I wanted to, if it's not too strong a word to say, maybe uh, to correct in a sense. And, and And I think that's one way that I entered dealing with, you know, a, a parallel history of modern art or, or even, you know, pre-modern histories of non-Western art. So it's one thing to be interested in Western art. It's another thing to be interested in non-Western art, but, you know, kind of where your work comes alive and the investigation you've really engaged in is juxtaposing and comparing and contrasting those two things. Do you remember when you came to realize you could do that, that that became a, I don't, I, you know, I hate this word, but strategy. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting. There was an art history class at MICA where I was studying uh, in which uh, the uh, instructor showed a slide of Giotto's Arena Chapel in Padua. The painting in that building is astonishing, but uh, what really struck me at that time was this pattern on the floor that looked really kind of similar to Islamic geometric pattern. For me, that was kind of a spark. I kind of started drawing out and trying to figure out that pattern, and I became interested in Islamic geometric pattern. And uh, at the time, like I said, I was a figurative painter, so it was quite a radical leap for me to kind of go into painting uh, nothing but the pattern. I think I may have done some, tried some combinations of figure and pattern before I got deeper into like figuring out what the pattern was all about. And I, I started to read a little bit. And there was an art history instructor at MICA named Carol Beer, who uh, was working at the textile museum. She was a curator at the textile museum in D.C., and we became friendly and yeah, so it kind of, and at the same time I was studying with those kinds of Hans Hoffman painters. So, but, but when things really kind of got complicated, I think for me was when I went to graduate school at Columbia and kind of was met with a whole new set of ideas and, and people and different ways of thinking about things. So before we leave Baltimore, the Walters Art Museum is one of Baltimore's two main museums and as, you know, it's principally, but not entirely, a collection built by a 19th century American, well, I was going to say industrialist, but but really it's a collection collection built on, on importing liquor from, from Europe. <laughs> so maybe not quite an industrialist, but it's a collection with lots of kind of 19th century Orientalism in it, you know, French painters doing the Orientalist thing. Do you, did you go see it? Did, do you remember having kind of reactions against the obvious 
stereotyping and falseness of it? I, I did spend some time at the Walters and I, I spent a lot of time in DC uh, at the Freer and Sackler galleries as well. I was actually, uh, once I started making this pattern-based work and talking about it with a few of my professors, there was a, a photographer who was not really an art photographer, but he was like a photojournalist who was teaching a couple of literature classes at MICA named Harry Mattison. And he immediately said, you must read Edward Said. Now, you know, at any BFA program or most BFA programs, I think maybe Parsons, where I teach now, is a bit different. But at MICA, you know, you had, uh, maybe it's changed since I was there, but you didn't have uh, the strongest liberal arts uh, program. And so, you know, people, I, we really depended on people like Harry Madison to uh, to kind of open things up. And then Harry uh, uh, introduced me to Edward Said's Orientalism, and that's when I kind of started to think about the question of representation and 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 how I might fit into the larger history as an artist. You mentioned getting your MFA at Columbia and how being in New York and perhaps being on the Upper West Side helped further focus you. How so? Well, I think what happened when I went to Columbia was that, you know, as as uh, as much as I, I knew about painting and making paintings, I think I was rather uh, ignorant about contemporary art. And um, so I was I, I went to Columbia to study with Kara Walker. I saw that she was on the faculty and I had known her work and I applied only to that school. And if it didn't work out, I wasn't going to go to grad school. Once I went there, I was introduced to a handful of other artists like John Kessler and Rikrit Tervana and you know Coco Fusco and Dana Hoey and so on, uh, people who became really important to me. And I think that the thing that happened with that education for me was that I was working with a lot of artists who came out of you know the 90s with, uh, like I said, identity politics, but also relational aesthetics and so on. So I think that it, it really opened things up for me in a way that I had not anticipated going in. So let's make some of these ideas we've been talking about more specific by, by kind of bringing in a, a body of work of yours. And I'm thinking of your ornamental composition for social spaces paintings, which combine title with artwork, you know, with object in a way that kind of reveals a whole bunch of intent. So obviously the titling of the things is pointed and crucial. Let's talk about the word ornament or ornamental. I'm guessing both the word and the concept interest you. Yes, exactly. I think that uh, or ornaments and the decorative are two terms that are kind of usually uh, conflated. I'm not sure if if I'm kind of personally redefining them by deciding that ornament is a completely different concept than uh, than decorative, but the way that I've kind of thought about it is that ornament has the capacity for content. So uh, an ornamental Persian rug, uh, in fact, has content, but it's, it, it was an idea-based composition and uh, the, the uh, forms and, and you know, it's, it's, it's very much a parallel to painting. That's how I think about it to, um, you know, modernist painting, a rectangular object that sits in a room and either changes the mood of that room or, or if one studies it, has uh, some kind of content. Whereas decorative, I think about as uh, something that's excessive, something that's there, something uh, that, that's devoid of content. And so I often 
think about like uh, any kind of painting that might be in the bathroom of a restaurant. It might be a vase of flowers or it might be a puppy or something. And, and, and that we can, uh, that can be seen as a decorative painting, even though it's not pattern based or ornamental in its composition. So for example, a Frank Stella painting can be seen as ornamental. I, I even think of, uh, you know, Jackson Pollock paintings as rather ornamental as well. Um, so that's kind of how I think I see that that term uh, in, in relation to my own work. There are a number of elements that are common to many or even most, probably darn near all of the ornamental composition for social spaces paintings. And I've got, you know, three or four or five here on the screen in front of me. And um, how about if I mention something and and maybe you could riff a little bit on uh, what about it interests you, where it comes from, that kind of thing. First one is the use of the grid. Obviously, there are lots of kind of modernist um, and uh, related reasons to use the grid, but you know there are lots of other places in the history of art, including non-Western art, that the grid comes into play, such as with, with Islamic or Ottoman tiles. How and why does using a grid interest you? Well, the, yeah, the grid is really just the basis for composing the painting. It's really the structure underneath all the, the patterns and, and uh, oftentimes determines the patterns. You know, in the case of the triangles, they're really just one step away from the grid. I think that really early on, actually, when I was still a student, I was exposing the grid to kind of show the process or maybe demystify the geometric patterns in a way. In the paintings that are from that series that are uh, in the current show at, uh, at the Modern, the grid can be seen as part of the history of the painting in the sense that every one of the paintings starts with the grid and then the pattern is kind of built on top of that grid. And then the grid is often excavated to, or, or, or redrawn and reinforced. In one way, I kind of maybe think of it as the uh, sort of functional mark becoming expressive in a sense. I think about Agnes Martin a lot as um, an artist who was maybe often kind of categorized with uh, minimalism or minimalists, but I think she really thought of herself as an abstract expressionist, which I think was is fascinating to me and, and makes actually perfect sense. And in a way, that kind of functional mark of dividing the composition uh, becomes an expressive mark. And I think that the, the grid for me is, uh, uh, has that role as well. Where do you think of the triangles as coming from? The triangles for me have always been a reference to uh, modernist uh, art and architecture. When they're drawn with, within the grid, they, they kind of refer to some of the terrazzo patterns that you might see in Italy or, or even drawn on the side of a, uh, even the exterior of a uh, building, the kind of part of the vernacular architecture. Uh, but initially, the first uh, triangles were really, for me, um, referencing suprematism. So speaking, speaking of which, those brightly colored circles, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's funny when talking about the paintings, it's it's really like uh, I, I kind of feel like at some point I'm bullshitting you if I if I go into like, you know, uh, trying to like break down the semiotics of the painting. I think it, it really so much of it is that I mean, the references are all there. I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to dismiss that that the fact that the patterns are derived from Persian carpets is significant to me in some way or that the uh, 
or that the triangle becomes a sort of way of of uh, taking this su- suprematist form and 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 uh, ornamentalizing it. You know, I don't want to dismiss all of that at the same time when I'm painting. So much has you know, I, like I said, I was trained in that Hans Hoffmann school of painting. So it's really about just trying to work the entire canvas, create a tension and a balance and and make it hum, you know? So I think that oftentimes that red dot or, or the orange dot, um, or sometimes like uh, several different colored dots, they, they serve as, as uh, compositional tools and, and, and it's really formal. While still being language, while still being almost like a dictionary reference to something that any art lover, painting lover will, will understand. Flowers could... You know, flowers could interest you because of symbolism or 17th century Dutch floral still lifes or Matisse and Bernard paintings or, or Persian and Indian manuscript painting. Do you think of your interest in flowers or even the specific flowers you paint as having a source or are they simply there to be read as flowers? They do have a source uh, and the source is Persian carpets that I've photographed in Persian carpet stores in New York City. So it really does have to do with, uh, you know, the first time that I started working with Persian carpets, I was interested in the Persian carpet as a parallel to painting. And the fact that we kind of dismiss Persian carpets as, uh, uh, you know, uh, luxury commodities, and uh, and we think of painting as the kind of higher form of art, and, and that, you know, carpets would be included in the minor arts, let's say. So in a way, I think it's, you know, that that history is maybe uh, problematic and something that I wanted to uh, renegotiate. And and so originally, initially, when I was in uh, graduate school, I started photographing these carpets in carpet stores in New York City, where they're the most commodified, and and then projecting them onto the canvas, drawing them pretty rapidly, and then and then getting into the painting process uh, from there. However, the idea of the flowers being a specific type of flower and having a specific reference uh, or a specific meaning is not so interesting to me. Even the idea of the carpets being uh, the, the specific meaning of the carpets, let's say, if we want to talk about this, the path of uh, uh, spiritual development and Sufism, the Persian garden, etc. Those things are interesting, but that's it, what's more interesting to me is that the carpet had content, and that's what I'm interested in kind of renegotiating, not getting into the specifics of what the flowers mean. And another thing that I would probably add is that there's a, a curator named Akim Hakdorfer who has, uh, wrote a text called A Hidden Reserve, where he talks about a period of painting in the U.S., particularly after abstract expressionism, uh, in which a lot of the artists were working with the approach or the forms or the gestures of abstract expressionism, but but to a different end or with a different kind of ideology, if that's not too strong a word. Uh, the artists being John Mitchell, John Schneider, Cy Twombly, etc. That idea, like, and, and he talks about the semiotics of the mark, which is a little bit out there, but actually it makes sense when I go when we were talking about the grid and we go back to the idea of, you know, the functional mark becoming expressive and so on. So, Last question on the ornamental composition for social spaces work. Where do you think of the palette for those paintings as, as coming? For me, as a Matisseian, 
I noticed that a lot of those colors are also in Matisse's Morocco paintings, for example. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was someone, I think it was actually, I had a studio visit with Lynn Cook and she brought up Matisse and wanted to talk about Matisse. And I was reluctant to, because I kind of, you know, I, I went to grad school very young and I was, I was, uh, I was disappointed that this kind of Matisse's Orientalism would become like a reference for my work, <laughs> which is, which is funny because I think in, in retrospect, Matisse becomes a more and more important artist for me. That said, however, the colors in the paintings are often the result of the process, uh, meaning that Every painting in that series begins with the grid, and then this pattern is drawn over it with oil crayons, and that pattern is completely wiped away. And that wiping away is what kind of stains the ground of the painting. And and so the the, the main kind of color scheme that you'll see is is quite I can't say arbitrary because in the end I do decide which colors to draw the pattern uh, with and and there's a sensibility there but um, it's it's not a specific reference you have a number of moves if you will that occur across exhibitions and in in works one of them is that you are insistent about or even choose how the walls on and around which your work is painted, are painted, one or the other. <laughs> Why is that important to you and how do you make those decisions? Well, recently, it, it's quite, that's actually quite a long story. <laughs> so the, the use of wall painting or uh, what I'll refer to as exhibition design within uh, the work sort of started in, in two different places. One was the, in, the studying or, you know, viewing the Encyclopedic Museum. I, I spend a lot of time at the Met, and I, I, I pay a lot of attention to the way that things are displayed and the kind of uh, environment that is created around the works, the way they're lit, the color of the walls, the kind of mounts that an object has, uh, which I think all serve to, like, really transform that object. And my interest in that came earlier with uh, in the form of artwork photography and art history texts, uh, 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 manuscripts. Um, let's say something like a catalog of Iranian art objects from, you know, the 60s. And in the 60s, they had these quite bright red or uh, blue or green backdrops for the, for the uh, objects that they displayed. Or else it was a really stark black and white you know, uh, 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 strong lighting, strong shadows kind of composition. So the the way that objects are displayed was always interesting to me. And over time, I started to think about that within the work itself, uh, within the sculptural works. Uh, oftentimes, you know, I will have an object on a pedestal with a painting behind it. And that goes back to the conversation about uh, the decorative, uh, taking the kind of geometric abstraction and giving it uh, the role of uh, a backdrop. You know, maybe turning the tables on the idea of uh, the minor arts by having, you know, a decorative object in front of that painting and have the painting serve as its backdrop. And the, the painting of the walls came after that as another way of kind of designing the space and creating a relationship between the works and also just very practically dividing this space. A lot of the, I find a lot of this, 
exhibition spaces that I've uh, worked with to be quite awkward and that I want to do something to them. And there's there's not always a budget or um, uh, to, to build walls uh, and to kind of uh, change the architecture of the space or else I feel there's just so much waste in in art making. So, you know, uh, oftentimes galleries will reconstruct the entire gallery for a show that's up for uh, six months and then the rest of it after the six months the walls get demolished and taken away and and i wanted to kind of in maybe think about ways that one can change the space without really altering permanently or i guess it's never permanently because they tear it down but without altering the architecture uh, but you are really archi- uh, altering the architecture through wall painting Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you, I, I suspect you use or insist upon a heck of a lot more lights and candle wattage than than most painters would, or the most artists would. I, I sure did in uh, at the modern. <laughs> I think I used um, just about all the lights that they they had available. I counted I counted sixteen on one wall in one picture, so <laughs> a whole lot of a whole lot of light. <laughs> yeah, and it still didn't feel very bright. But you know, get the show at Museum Dondinens in uh, Belgium from last year. That was the first time that I was able to show in completely natural light. The entire museum is skylit and. Uh, Wow, that was such a privilege. And to be able to kind of watch the light change throughout the day. One of the works was right by a window and you would see the sun kind of come in and cast shadows. And and so I, I found that to be another interesting variable. Your recent show in Atlanta had, had lots of skylights that uh, that would have brought in light too. You know, while we were talking about walls, you mentioned that you often bring in sculptural elements that may, for example, but not always, be in front of a painting or near the edge of a painting. When did you begin to to bring in three dimensional objects, and uh, and why? The three dimensional objects or the sculptural works really came out of a series of uh, collages that I was making that are titled "Ancient Through Modern." That title actually comes from a class that I was in in college, which was. I think I must be misremembering it because ancient through modern sounds so ambitious. And um, as an art history course, it must have been like ancient through Gothic and then another class was modern and maybe I just uh, uh, confused them. But And can I just jump in for a second? These are collages that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are two-dimensional. Yes, the collages are two-dimensional. They're made from the actual pages of books that I found. And my only rule for the books being kind of like nostalgic or being older books is is that they were published before 1979, which is when Said's Orientalism was published. Working with those, uh, there was one particular book called 7,000 Years of Iranian Arts, which was objects that were loaned to the U.S. to various institutions by the Iranian government, and I think a, a private collection as well. And these, it was a gesture of diplomacy, but it was also kind of a gesture of intimidation. 7,000 years of Iranian art, this kind of like, you know. Yeah, you, you, you country that is 203 years old or whatever. Exactly, yeah. And so I, I think, it, and what I find fascinating is that Iranians in particular, but many, many cultures that have an ancient, you know, uh, past that, they're, that, that they evoke have this sort of cultural nostalgia this way of uh, going to the Met and going straight to the 
ancient Persian galleries and talking about their glorious past and what a great civilization we were and how we had the first declaration of human rights and, you know, all these kind of grand things that I think, especially Iranians, especially those abroad, because so many Iranians abroad have a a, a dismal view of Iran today. And so they like to dig up the past as a way of kind of talking about the, the glory of our culture. And so the uh, I got a little bit sidetracked, but the the book Seven Thousand Years of Iranian Art was one of the the main kind of publications that I used for these collages. And I looked at the book and I saw the institutions that this exhibition had toured, and I was interested in trying to show these collages in those uh, uh, institutions to kind of take it back to uh, some of those institutions. And long story short, that didn't really work out. And <laughs> I think there are some. Uh, I had some different ideas about, you know, contemporary art and intervening in a collection than maybe some curators would like to hear. And so I decided at that point, I, I got more and more interested in the encyclopedic museum itself. And I wanted to kind of bring the the museum to the work if I could. So there was one work that I made in which I, I stretched uh, uh, linen on a panel and actually installed the collages on the painting. So the, 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 the stretched linen had a geometric abstraction on it, and that painting became the backdrop for these collages with, with uh, these you know, decorative objects on them. So that was kind of the first time that, that was the first time that maybe I used uh, objects. After having kind of placed these framed collages on top of this painting, essentially, I started thinking more and more about how I might engage objects in the museum. And of course, I didn't have the budget to really start acquiring objects that one might find um, in a museum. So that's when I received a, uh, a prize. It's like a prize commission called the Abraj Art Prize. And the Abraj Prize uh, allowed that kind of budget where I could really fabricate, you know, a, a, a large sculptural work with a, a shelf and and I actually started working with uh, somebody who's a mount maker at the Met and had a lot of uh, uh, meetings with uh, um, Maryam Ehtiar, who's a curator at the, uh, in the Islamic galleries in, at the Met. And I, I learned quite a bit about the way that things are displayed in, in museums. And I did a tour and went and saw various encyclopedic museums around the world. And that project, which was which was called Ancient Through Modern, a collection of uncertain objects, was the first time that I was actually able to engage uh, a variety of objects, whether they were genuine antiquities or objects that I had designed and, and, and built, objects that were maybe replicas from a, a museum gift shop, uh, and so on. You also participated in, I think, the fifth season of the Artist Project at the Met will have uh, either the video embedded or a link to the video on manpodcast.com. So speaking of the ancient through modern collages, the two-dimensional works, many of them are on very flat, very bright color. And at least for me, recall Sarah Charlesworth. Was she of interest or important to you in those works? You know, it's interesting. There's This might sound like a bit of a cop-out. I become interested in a lot of artists 
after I do something that evokes their work, you know. So <laughs> I'll do something. The subconscious is powerful. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. I'll do something, and somebody will say, uh, "Oh, have you seen the work of Sarah Charlesworth?" And then I will look her up, and I'll say, "Oh yeah, I think I've seen some of this," and and then I'll get really into it, and maybe then it comes uh, into the work in some way. I did take some photographs that were studio still lives with some of the objects that I've been collecting. And I think that work was made definitely after I was familiar with, uh, uh, more familiar with Sarah Charlesworth's work. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. The same with, with uh, Carlo Scarpa, the architect who is, uh, I've become very interested in uh, the last few years and maybe a bit of has a cult following among artists and, and uh, um, architects. But, you know, again, I'd made some gestures that maybe you know reflected Scarpa's work and um, an Italian curator said uh, have you seen Scarpa's work and I said well you know I've heard of like the Olivetti showroom or something and then the next year I went on a tour of all the major Scarpa works in northern Italy and then a couple years later I went and saw all the major works in Palermo and yeah so I think that there becomes a little bit of a clairvoyance maybe. <laughs> You're one of a number of young artists who kind of work within two simultaneous languages. One is the language of abstraction itself and how uh, certain abstract shapes or forms or, or, or use of colors kind of has become a dictionary of its own. And, and, and then you also work in a way that references, of course, the cultural history of, of abstractions and, and you kind of put it together. And, and I'm, you know, there are a bunch of artists who do this, artists such as Getty Saboni, uh, or Sarah Vanderbeek or Carol Beauvais, all all former Man podcast guests. I understand the, all of the art historical things you're looking at, going back through seven thousand years of Iranian art and so on. But are those peers at whom you also look? Are are you conscious of being engaged in in kind of a discourse? With, with them, even if maybe you guys don't sit around and have drinks at the end of the night? Sure, yeah. And some of the artists, you know, you've mentioned, I, I, I am very much interested in their work. I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've thought about it exactly that way in terms of, uh, in, in the terms that you put it. I think about Tauba Auerbach as somebody who's done very interesting work uh, with ornament and, and seems to be interested in, in, in some similar ideas. The artist Iman Isa, who's also engages the museological in a uh, in a wonderful way, I think, in a poetic way that's not uh, that doesn't have the dryness of like some some of the engagements with with the museum that can become a little bit didactic and dry. Her work is quite poetic and beautiful as well. And and I have a, a, a dialogue with her. I don't know if I'm getting off the topic here, but just referencing the history of painting and, and kind of like my interest in painting, there was, there's so much of having to kind of carve out your own space, especially when I was a graduate student. And and I, earlier I mentioned that, you know, I was working with uh, a lot of artists who were coming out of identity politics and, and uh, uh, relational aesthetics and so on. And, and there was a pressure to kind of uh, be able to uh, answer for your work in a way that if you were to talk about abstraction in a certain way, it could be, it could be dismissed as subjective. And, and I remember at one point we had a, a group of the art history and curatorial studies uh, students at Columbia started to come visit the MFA student studios just as, a, as an exchange and to have a, a dialogue. 
And I remember being warned by one student that my work could be perceived to be Greenbergian. And I remember thinking, yeah, it was like, it was like, well, you know, you have to be really careful. This could be perceived to be Greenbergian. And, and I thought it was just so, it was so interesting to me, the kind of ideologies and sort of dogma that go into art making, which is really, you know, when we think about the idea of uh, the idea that artists, you know, maybe should be incredibly free thinking and, and, and innovative. And, and uh, I, I feel like the restrictions that are placed upon uh, what you do by other artists, as well as other kinds of peers, I guess, um, I'm getting like way off topic, I think, but it's a, it's something that just, you know, in terms of like how I relate to other artists or the dialogues that I had, which was like an interesting moment that I feel like I had to push back against eventually, like coming out of grad school, I feel like you have to answer to so much that oftentimes you lose your sensitivity and your kind of uh, porousness as an artist, which I think, you know, those ideas around being an emotional person or making art that has an emotional impact uh, or, 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 you know, the, one of the most tabooed terms, a spiritual impact, you know, I found so problematic and it took me a while to kind of get back to why I started making art in the first place, you know, that the making something that was maybe intellectually engaged and emotional was not, didn't have to be mutually exclusive, you know. That's, that's really interesting because the reason I asked and named those the three artists I named and then you added some artists to the list, because I was wondering if your interest in, in their work is more about the language of abstraction or more about, and forgive the phrase, addressing cultural histories and their relationship to objecthood and how we experience those objects now. Hmm. Because I think almost all of the artists we've mentioned do both. Right, right. And that's kind of the point of their practices or practice. Again, my singular plural references are way off today. <laughs> <laughs> I think both, really. You know, I think that, I, I think that you know, the, the, the experience that I have with viewing or, or experiencing artworks is, uh, is multifaceted. I think it's that, that way for all of us. And, and I'm not more interested in the kind of cultural history than I am in, in you know, the uh, formal experience of the work. I think those things should kind of depend on each other in some ways or kind of it's almost like a Tom and Jerry experience, you know, where like the, <laughs> one is chasing the other and then it flips around and the other is chasing back, you know, with a, a giant mallet. <laughs> Cultural references on this show can get pretty broad. <laughs> Finally, you have a show up now in, in Fort Worth, of course, and you just had a show up in Atlanta and you've shown in New York and you have a gallery in Dubai. Have you found that the conversations you have about your work or the questions you're asked about your work tend to be the same in those places, or are they really different and informed by those cities and the people in those cities' relationship with, say, the material in your work or the things that your work addresses? There are a lot of similarities, I think, in the way that people engage the work. There are some cult cultural things that, for example, you know, oftentimes in New York, people ask less questions and they like to assume that they already know. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, you know, there's like they, people uh, are reluctant to ask questions and engage in a way that for me. Excellent. Kamru Zaram, thanks so much. Thank you so much.
This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Now through April 15th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents three spectacular exhibitions from a stylistically diverse group of artists. All of Everything, Todd Oldham Fashion, presents dozens of intricately embellished garments from the multi-talented designer's fashion stint in the 1990s. William Kentridge's The Refusal of Time explores thought-provoking ideas about time through an immersive mix of sounds, movement, and stunning imagery. And from Austrian photomontage artist Anita Vitek comes her first-ever U.S. installation, Clip, on view in the Wexner Center lobby. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Courtside Photographs by Bill Bamberger, an exhibition of vibrant color photographs of a variety of basketball hoops around the world. From Maine to Florida and Rwanda to Mexico, the hoops indicate places both where basketball is played and where communities and relationships are built. They are objects that often shape and reflect those communities. As a part of many diverse landscapes, the hoops become integral elements of each location's unique narrative. The artist, Bill Bamberger, is a resident of Durham, North Carolina, and an instructor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. On view through May 13th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Matthew Angelo Harrison. He's included in two shows, Songs for Sabotage, the New Museum Triennial, which is on view through May 27th, and a solo exhibition at Jessica Silverman Gallery in San Francisco. That's up through this weekend, April 21st. Harrison will also be included in the forthcoming I Was Raised on the Internet, a group exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Matthew Angelo Harrison, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, how's it going? When and how did African sculpture first begin to interest you as something you might make use of in your work, as opposed to when did it first begin to interest you as a human? <laughs> yeah, it came from, I mean, I guess I always have these, I always had an idea that I was inspired by these objects or that they, or I was interested in mostly how they related to me in general, but it wasn't until college and I, I went through the the rigors of conceptual art school that I find myself in this really interesting spot where I found it really hard to engage in or even understand a lot of the the concepts that I guess white male artists would come up with and like how they didn't have to bear the responsibility of talking about something that was ethnically specific to them kind of like how Joseph Kasuth could like talk about specific parts of reality and the duplicity of objecthood or the complications surrounding objecthood and objectivity. And I was like, well, can I do that? And I tried it and it didn't work. You know, people would always, my peers and classmates or like my teachers always ask me like 
so uh, like how does this relate to my race or so, or something about my ethnicity yeah, that was like really weird and I really wanted to enter this common space where I was free to just talk about what I wanted to but it was like unavoidable at some point and I understood that and then I kind of embraced that and then I started to kind of engage more and get comfortable with the idea that like oh this is a this is an artifact of you know the system that I live in and I should like approach things differently and not try to shy away from that conversation kind of embrace it instead the school you mentioned is the School of the Art Institute of Chicago so are these white professors and white classmates who are pushing you toward address of for lack of a better phrase, identity or, or, or not? Uh, it was pretty much everyone. Like it, it didn't really like matter surprisingly, which was confusing, but I don't know. I just, yeah, I just decided to, to just embrace it and kind of talk about it from, you know, talk about the construction of identity as opposed to the politics of identity. So when you became interested in African sculpture, which is an intentionally broad and nebulous term, at least in the way I'm using it, was your interest at any point specific to a century, a people's, a geography, or were you just more interested in it for the breadth of the, the category, if you will? Yes, yeah, I do. But still, it's like that's it's an in between answer I have for you. Yes, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I have a a, a focus on like uh, amalgams and generalized forms that come out of adding and collecting multiples. So, like if I if I deal with like a sculpture from a specific region, I don't. I, I rather like mix it together with other. Like when I 3D when I make 3D printer works, for instance, like I'll take several samples and then I'll combine those features into one object and then I'll print it. That was where like where I started with that series or like the the mediating the the collected data through something digital was like a, a nice way for me to kind of free my hand from put to create space between me and the 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 resource, if if that makes sense. Because, yeah, I wanted to focus on the construction of identity instead of talking about myself so much, which is why I've always been attracted to the idea of having this freedom inside of art to kind of escape the confines of, like, your one singular self, you know? Like, what about groups that we belong to? Or, like, the idea is that groups overlap and change and and uh, our dynamic and uh, our dynamic you mentioned 3d printing one kind of grouping of work you make this is going to be a horrible description but you you print using a 3d printer what might be called mutations of originals originals and kind of air quotes and i see in those 3d printed works kind of a couple things including references to a failure and difficulty to understand history more on that in a minute maybe but but also issues around evolution and how errors can be introduced into seemingly ironclad or lock-safe digital systems. Was the opportunity to 
add bugs, to add errors, what attracted you to 3D printing? Well, I think I'm attracted to 3D printing for several reasons. I mean, I like the fact that you can build the machines yourself, and there's a certain democracy within that, and the ability to produce something that would normally only be able to be made on a like in some sort of industrial setting and i don't know just kind of like i'm sure it's kind of a lot a a very similar feeling to how people felt when when painters could print out laser jet prints you know like the the labor is not an issue if you can focus more on the idea like i don't know just very basic but it, but that's that's probably not what you're asking. You're you're probably asking me like uh, conceptually how 3D printing has influenced my work. Is that kind of? I'm kind of asking both. Yeah, I mean, and and you obviously answered just one part of it. But was the ability to mutate a visual idea or a visual object to to build in mutations by how you code or instruct the 3D printer was that a big attraction? Was that a key part of the attraction? Uh, yeah, for sure. Or just the fact that you could use different materials that also introduce their own directions. I, I love that. You know, I think I what's think a, that what's a good what's what's a good example of that? Um, like a clay or a paste material. So, like a clay, depending on how you construct a clay body, it can have different properties related to elasticity or coarseness rigidness you know what i mean how it dries shrinkage you can manipulate all those properties to your will have different results because of it maybe the same same exact file and everything so on one hand there's your interest in 3d printing on the other hand there's your interest in african sculpture and it seems to me like putting those things together seems like a pretty significant move did it happen at once did it happen gradually i think it snuck up on me I had been scanning those objects before I made ever made a 3D printer. And I think maybe before I even thought of making a 3D printer, I think I was intended to use it graphically. But then I, I decided to actually build a 3D printer. I didn't start small either. I went immediately to the biggest, most obnoxious scale that I could like fit into my mom's basement. <laughs> so... and the first time failed horribly and wasted a lot of money and then the second time I got it 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 was uh there's something about passing those those works that are made by another artist for a different reason or having a different like skill set mindset through this like machine that interprets you know their geometry and I'll put something only like a husk of what they made you know so it's like a shell or like a i think of them as a like evidence of something and not really the full thing that it's supposed to represent so just to make sure i understand right the scanning you were doing was three-dimensional scanning yeah one of the the other things that really jumps out of your work for me is the inaccessibility of history Um, whether that's because people choose not to access it or whether something 
about the historical material itself, such as decay or degeneration or natural disaster, causes it to be inaccessible. And that's a theme in both the works of yours that feature African sculpture embedded in resin, and it's in the BKGD works, which appear to feature books sitting on a table. And, and of course, you can't pick up and open the books because they're not really books. And, and, and as I stumble through this question, the recursiveness of the thing is hopefully becoming clear. <laughs> so were you, as an undergrad or shortly after school, interested in, in the slipperiness of history? Yeah, always. I found it. Well, I mean, I can. Get, I guess I can start all the way back at high school. You know, I went to. My mom is from Detroit, but she specifically moved to this area outside of Detroit called Gross Point, which is like, I think, pretty known. But um, they have a school district. Yeah. Yeah. So she moved me there. She's a single mother, so she decided to move me there while she had her factory job in Hamtramck, actually, funny enough, which is, like, down the street from where my studio is now, which is kind of crazy. But I think there's a big General Motors uh, assembly plant there, right? Uh, no, it's American Axle. They since moved the, the factory that the plant that she was working in to Mexico, I think, and, you know, but, um, yeah, I went there, and the way they taught American history was so weird, so I would take, like, I took AP American history, or U.S. history, and it was, there was so much missing, it's just, like, so freaking sterile and edited to, like, convey this sense of, you know, completion, or resolved like a resolved history and it's like history's never like that so they're like i just thought that was bogus so <laughs> that always like kind of stuck with me even through college so i i looked more into i got more interested in the construction of like histories and storytelling and like i explored different i, I like i got more interested in philosophy because of that because i just like Nelson Goodman's structure of appearance, things like that. I got more into that because that dealt with logic or just very structural issues with language and communication. And then I took that knowledge and I applied that to sculpture. With the BKGD works, are there always three books on a table? Yes. Why three? Be, well, the work is based on sculptures in the books of Stanley Brown. It's it's referencing another piece, oh, a few pieces at once in this book, and three was the right amount for this work. I, I don't really have a great answer for that. <laughs> uh, last thing on the BKGD works, what does BKGD stand for? Uh, BKGD is basically co-language for background in uh, CSS format. And then uh, Brown is a play on Stanley Brown's name and also just the color brown. <laughs> so uh, it's a it's a play on words, the type. <laughs> See, I'm code stupid, so I never would have known. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
you know, the other the other kind of big theme that runs through a lot of your work is the fuzziness of identity, whether it's cultural identity or personal identity. Does your interest in in that fuzziness come from the historical material itself, you know, in this case, perhaps African sculpture, or is it much more bio- biographical and the sculpture happens to be a way of of making the personal into objects? I guess it's somewhere in between. Because at the same time, I acknowledge that it's impossible not to talk about myself in some some shape. Or, I'm, I'm never free from the work, but at the same time, I try to convey a sense of distance between myself and the things that I'm producing. So it's kind of like a, a um, like a like a film director that has a certain style, but the it's not a autobiographical film. You know what I mean? Or it's not like the like you'll see my behavior and my my choices are very my own in style, but the content itself is uh, a little bit removed from me. So the resin around the wooden sculptures almost serves as both a jewel boxing and a distance creating. Well, no, I think of the the, the encapsulations as, uh, well, the plastic as an extension of the object inside of it. So a lot of these sculptures are supposed to kind of reflect this industrial vibe, like a, a block of aluminum or a block of steel, you know, and then the the potential part that can be made from that. Matthew Angelo Harrison, thanks so much. Oh yeah, no problem. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.